Um, last week and this week, we're doing something a little bit different. So it's your first week. Um, it, today's a little bit different than, and yes, last week was a little bit different than normal. Um, we're going through something called gospel-centered discipleship. And so what's been going on is over the last nine months or so, uh, the, uh, the other elder and I, Jack, Jack and I, have been thinking about how we can make disciples better here at Remedy. And we've been thinking about it and praying about it for a good nine months, and we've decided on something that we're calling gospel-centered discipleship, not that we made up the name. It's a book, and it's just a... Uh, a really good implementation on how, how to help you become a better disciple of Jesus and make more disciples. And so the last two weeks, last week and this week, we've been talking about how we're going to do that here at Remedy. So if this is your first time, I know it's a little bit different, um, and we'll be back into Matthew next week. I invite you to come back for what would be more of a normal kind of sermon. So uh, that's what's going on today, and we're going to be in Colossians 1 if you want to flip through there or, or to there. Um, I told the first service, it's, it's page 1183 in my Bible. That probably didn't help you at all, but that's where it is in mine. Um, and we are eventually going to get there, I promise. I'm going to talk for a little bit, and then we're going to get to 1180, or I should say the book of Colossians. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. So let me pray together so we can, I can at least calm down and we can get ourselves um, in order. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity you've given me to be able to come here and um, preach your word. I I pray specifically for last week and this week, the thing that we're talking about, gospel-centered discipleship, um, that everyone here would see and understand the absolute need that we've been given um, and command that we've been given from Jesus to go make disciples. And that would be something that's um, important to us, that we take serious, and that we would want to ourselves grow as a disciple and make disciples um, if we're in Christ, that it's not a... Um, an idea that maybe we should consider, but it is what we should do. And so I pray for myself today that as I talk about that, um, that wouldn't be the primary thing that shines through, that Jesus would shine through this sermon, that he would be seen as the most important reality in all the world. And that if anybody here doesn't know Christ, that they would hear and see and understand the gospel and become a believer today. And if they are a believer, God, that they would see the absolute need for them to fulfill this command of, great, of Matthew 28 to go make disciples And so, Lord, um, the only way that can happen is by your Spirit. I I cannot produce that. I am, just like everyone else here, um, needing to hear from you. And so would you come and speak through me now, ready my heart and ready all of our hearts to hear from you and be changed by you today. Um, Keep me from error. Keep me from things that would not be true. And may I speak um, your word uh, today. We we love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm a dad. I know that maybe that may come as a surprise, but I'm actually really old and have four kids. Um, And so my last one is, is, she's two, and she is the most strong-willed we've ever had. And so I made one of the most grave mistakes ever in my life the other day. She's, her strong will is really starting to come out. And so we get her ready for bed, and she's getting in bed, and she's got, you know, these rails, and she has to kind of climb up on the side. So as she's getting in, I kind of helped her into the bed, and that, that was, that was it. I mean, that was the wrong thing to do. She's, no, dad, I do it. She gets back down and and stands here, and she does this, which means I'm going to start over, and if you touch me, where it's on. And so whenever she's about to go, I kind of help her again, just because, you know, I like to help, kind of, help them get maybe uh, a little bit charged up. So anyway, I help her again, and she gets back down, and she gets all mad at me, and then she throws her little fit where she tells me, I can do it all by myself. Now, mind you, she's two years old, but she's got an attitude, um, and I think that what happens is even in the, those beginning ages, especially if you have independent, you know, uh, children, or you have people, 
children that are really strong-willed, you can see it, that there's an independent streak in all of us where we absolutely can say, don't mess with me. I can do this completely by myself. And what get ha- well, I think what happens is, as we get older, for those that are believers that have this personality or maybe just living in American culture creates this, we all approach the Christian life, approach sanctification, which is just the process of becoming more Christ-like. We all approach our faith in Christ that exact same way. We tell people, I don't need your help. I'm going to be able to do this all by myself. I'm going to approach this completely by myself. I've got this. The only problem with that is the scriptures don't give us any indication that we're supposed to approach the Christian life that way. Um, As a matter of fact, Matt Chandler says this a lot. If you never heard of him, he's a pastor in Texas. He says that while your salvation is a personal thing, it's something that you've you know, independently by yourself, trusted in Christ, while your salvation is always a personal thing, it's never meant to be private. Um, and that's why the, the, the Bible uses terms like the body in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 and 1 Corinthians 12. It talks about whenever you become a believer, you've now entered into a body. And so the body, as we know, there, nobody's arm jo- jumps off and just drives itself to work and makes money independently. We need our whole body to go be able to do things. And that's the exact same idea. You as a believer need the body in order to grow in your faith. You as a believer need to get involved in a church body, be involved in a specific group of people that are believers because you are not wired and God has not wired it for you to approach the Christian walk by yourself. Otherwise, you're just a two-year-old yelling at her dad to get into the bed by yourself. And that's just just not the way Christ has intended that we would um, grow as believers. And so... Last week, we talked about, um, and that's why we're starting this, I should say, gospel-centered discipleship in the church, which is um, discipleship where you are doing that with other people, and other people are strategically going to be coming around you. We've set up a structure where you're going to be doing discipleship with other people, and you're going to grow in your sanctification. You're going to grow in your own becoming a disciple, and you're going to grow in making other disciples with people because this is the way the Bible has told us we're supposed to do it. So last week, we talked about um, the gospel. And so if you weren't here last week, I hesitate for you to even listen to this sermon. I really do. So here's the deal. If you weren't here last week, I want you to just grab your keys and go out. I'm just kidding. No, don't go out to your car. But here's the reason why. Um, because I said, I said this last week. Um, today, we're going to talk about what... I'm just kidding. I'm like, people are like, really? Leave? No, don't leave. Um, today, we're going to talk about what you as a disciple should do. But what I said last week is, I don't want to talk about what you're supposed to do as a disciple. All I want to talk about and I said this last week, is what Christ has done. I'm not going to get to any kind of application about what you need to do. All I want to do is talk about what Christ has done. Because when we talk about next week what what you have to do, if everything that you have to do is not grounded in, um, couched in, and find its firm foundation in what Christ has already done in the cross and what he's already declared of you, then it's going to get crazy. I mean, you're going to find yourself um, trying to become a disciple where you're going to have some real serious problems. And so if you weren't here last week, because today is predominantly on things that you should do, I want to catch you up to speed really fast with what we talked about last week. And I got to do this fast. Um, I want to talk about what Christ has already done for you. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 um, is where we found ourselves. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you've spent any time in church or any time around Christians, you hear the word gospel, which just simply means good news. And you've always thought, oh, gospel, that's the message of Jesus dying on the cross. And that's what unbelievers need to hear. So the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus dying on the cross is what I tell unbelievers. But me as a Christian, I've already got that. So I've moved on from that 
to other things. And now I'm talking about how to be a Christian dater and how I'm, how I'm supposed to be a good Christian dad. And while those things aren't necessarily wrong, um, what I want to help us understand is that idea of that's a message. The message is for unbelievers. And now for believers, I move on to different things. I want you to erase that mindset. Because the message of the gospel is not just for unbelievers to meet Jesus. It's a message that you as a Christian, no matter how old you are, need to hear and actually preach to yourself and continually believe in, just like the unbeliever, every single day. And Paul is addressing that in 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 1 through 6, he's he's writing to people that are Christians. And he says, now I would remind you, brothers, and this is just insinuating brothers and sisters who are in Christ, of the gospel. And so he's interestingly telling people who are already Christians the message of the gospel. And he tells them, in which you received. So it's already clear that you're a believer. In which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word or the gospel that I preach to you. And so it's absolutely necessary, just in that message right there, that we can see, even if you're in faith and been, been a believer for, you know, 30 years, somebody needs to come alongside you, and you as well, need to have the gospel preached to you every single day. So the gospel is not something that we hear and then move on from. The gospel is something that we come to and we sit at at the foot of the cross forever. And so he tells them the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 where he says Christ died for our sins and then we talked about this unbelievable truth that Christ died for your sins we just what we talked about last week he died for the sins that you know about and that you feel absolutely terrible about but he also died for the sins that you don't even think about that you'd think are no big deal he died for all those and all the ones you're going to do I mean the amazing um, covering of a sin that Christ has died for you where he took all of the wrath and anger of God that was supposed to be towards you. He took it all for you. And now you never know anger. You never know wrath from God. All you know is holiness, blamelessness. This is what God has declared you. And so he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised. And we, for a little while, unpacked this beautiful nature of the resurrection of Christ and how absolutely important it is in our lives. And so that's what we talked about. And I didn't want to talk about what, you wanted to, what we have to do as believers, but only wanted to talk about what Christ has done. Um, just as another way of maybe illustrating this, um, I want to look in Colossians 1, as we said, and look at verses 13 and 14, and just help, help you understand a little bit more about who you are in Christ, and that you are not um, in the dominion of darkness anymore. Look at what it says in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is speaking of the domain of which Satan is the the ruler and reigner right now of. The domain of darkness. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says that before Christ, before you were a Christian, you were a follower of the principle of the powers of the air, which means you were a follower of Satan before you came to Christ. I'm not saying that you would say, yeah, I was a devil worshiper. I, you know, I killed goats and all that. Kind of, I'm not saying you'd say that. But Paul says before Christ, this is what's true of you. You did not follow Jesus Therefore, you followed Satan. But what he says, this is amazing. If you're in Christ, this is where it gets awesome. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we can see there's been a huge change in what's true of you. You're no longer a part of the dominion of darkness, but you're now a part of the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so this is really, really important. And so in order for me to maybe highlight this, I want to talk a little bit about my college career. (laughs) Um, I was one of those forever college students. I I changed my mind, like changed my major 
a lot. And so I was going to say something that was inappropriate. So um, I changed my major a whole lot. Uh, and so not like sinful. So anyway, <laughs> and so after about three years of being in college, I need to get control. After about three years of being in college, I, I went to the University of South Carolina, um, go Gamecocks. And then as, as I was finishing up my last year, I realized God's calling me into ministry. And so I had to leave Charles, uh, uh, University of South Carolina, and I transferred to Charleston Southern. I knew God was calling me in, into ministry. It's a Baptist college, and I went down there and studied ministry and studied, you know, Bible, etc., etc. And so um, whenever I woke up for my first day at Charleston Southern— I didn't do this. I didn't get into my, walk out to my car, crank it up, drive all the way over to Columbia, and go, go to class in Columbia at USC. Why did I not do that? Because I was no longer um, a student at University of South Carolina. I had been transferred, or I had transferred, and was now a student at Charleston Southern. And I think that, that we all need to realize that's exactly what's the case for us. When we've been transferred, we are no longer members of the domain of darkness. And so we don't have to get in our car, crank it up and drive over to the house of sin and participate in that anymore. That is not you anymore if you're in Christ. You have been transferred, as a matter of fact, it says, into the kingdom of the beloved son. So now you are in Jesus's kingdom. Sin no longer has any reign over you. Now you still are finding yourself, like Romans chapter 7 says, you, you sin. If you're, this is for those who are in Christ. And you're trying to work that out. And you're trying to kill and put to death that sin. But Romans 6 is very clear that now, if you are in Christ, you are not a slave to sin, but you are a slave to righteousness. And that's beautiful. That's the kind of language all of us need to hear every single day. That's the kind of language that helps me understand I can choose not to sin if I'm in Christ. For those that aren't in Christ, they can't. They're slaves to sin. They can't help. No, they can, they can morally improve, but they'll always be a slave to sin. But for those who are in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we have been transferred. And so now we are in the kingdom of Jesus. That is good news. Come on now, that's good news. Let's hear it. All right, so, all right, I'm just kidding. Um, kind of. So what I'm wanting to do now is... This week, I wanted to talk to you about last week, what Christ has done. Now this week, I'm going to talk to you about what you need to do, what you need to do. And as I said, I'm nervous that if you didn't hear last week's sermon, that you could make some some major mistakes if everything that we're going to talk about what you need to do isn't couched in or finding its foundation in what Christ has done. This is what I mean. What you need to do as a believer, as a disciple maker, and as a disciple of Jesus should only be pursued if it's grounded in what Christ has done. Should only be pursued. If it's not, then that's whenever you can get into legalism. That's one danger. Legalism just means this. Um, It's a dependence on performance. It's a dependence on your works before God instead of your faith before God. Legalism gets works and faith in the wrong order. Ephesians 2 says, in verses 8 and 9, that it's by faith we've been saved through grace, and then we've been saved by that in order to go do good works. That's what it says in verse 10. It gets the order right. But legalism gets it out of order, and it says that now we have to work in order to have a right understanding or right relationship with Jesus. And so that's why it's so key for you to understand we have to talk about what Christ has done first before we talk about what you have to do. So, As believers now, we're saved for good works, not by good works. We're already saved, and we're saved to go do good works. Or another way to say it is, we are to work from our righteousness, not to work 
for our righteousness. That's huge. To think that your righteousness or your right standing before God could shift based on what you do rather than on what Christ has done is legalism. And it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. So that's, that's, one, um, that's one danger. The other danger is this. Um, some of you might say, all right, Fudd, here's the deal. <laughs> you're dangerous because you keep telling everybody who's in Christ, you're holy, you're blameless, everything's forgiven, all your sins, the big ones, the small ones, everything, that's dangerous stuff. You can't keep telling people about that unlimited grace that God has given to everybody. If you do that, they're just going to look at, you know, um, their sin is like a little credit card. I can just swipe my grace credit card and God keeps forgiving me. That's dangerous stuff. That's just leading towards license to sin, which is the other danger. There's legalism is one danger, but license is the other. And so let me just tell you, I'm not dangerous. I think that, um, I don't think, I think that uh, if you go the way of license, then you're misinterpreting something. You're misinterpreting that um, God somehow accepts our sin and God never accepts our sin. Just because I said that you're holy and you're still working out your sin doesn't mean that God now accepts your sin. As a matter of fact, the biggest indication of the Bible that shows us that God does not accept sin is the cross. I mean, that's the biggest, that's just screaming. I hate sin. If God's okay with sin, he certainly didn't need to crucify his son. And so there's a huge, huge scream out of the Bible, specifically at the cross in the name of Jesus, that shows us that God absolutely hates sin that jesus died with a reason and it's to show us that he hates sin so i don't want you to go off the way of legalism and think that you have to do things in order to have a right relationship with god but i don't want you to go out of the way of license um, or licentiousness or whatever you want to use and say that um well i'm forgiven i can do whatever i want instead i want you to i want to rein you in on both and you ha- we have something that um, we've gotten from the book gospel Center discipleship that's called gospel motivation which basically um doesn't make sloppy disciples and doesn't make Pharisees or legalists. But instead, we think of this. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It says, We have been received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters. That if you're in Christ, you are now a son or a daughter of Jesus. You are now a son or daughter of God. And because of that, whenever you are now a son or daughter, you've been given a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, that cries out, Daddy, Father. And because of that, you are no longer falling back into a slavery of fear. But now, um, the opposite of that has been given to you, which is faith. And that we were dead in our sin, but now God has made us alive. He's promised us eternal life. And now we have joy in Christ. And because of that gospel motivation, that we can move forward, hating sin and not letting ourselves do it, but realizing that our right standing with God is already secure in what Christ has already done. All right, so that's where I wanted to... uh, bring us up to date and kind of get us an understanding of what we're talking about now as we talk about what you have to do. Because there is some things I think, obviously, we, we live in the world, we, we move around, we breathe, we make decisions, we set our alarm clocks, we go to work, or hopefully you go to work, um, et cetera, et cetera. You go to class, don't miss class. Man, that's a bad idea. Um, that's why I was in college forever. So here we're talking about um, gospel-centered dis- discipleship. So what I wanted to do as we're going into, and I'm going to talk about what gospel-centered discipleship is going to do and what we're going to, um, how it's going to look at remedy, I wanted to give you an understanding that it's not just something that I 
just kind of thought of last week and I'm wanting to do. This is something that um, your elders, if you're a member or a regular attender at Remedy, have been thinking about and praying about for a long time. I'm going to give you a little bit of the history before I kind of tell you what gospel-centered discipleship is. And then we're going to look at uh, Colossians 1, I promise. I promise. I believe the inerrancy of the scripture, and that's what changes people. So we're going to the Bible, I promise. Um, but about nine months ago, in each year, Jack and I uh, kind of look at what are some of the things going on in the church, and we're, are we doing a good job at all of them? We started asking ourselves, are we doing a really good job at making disciples? And how can we improve at making disciples? How can Remedy itself, the church, improve at making disciples? And so before we got too far, and as we started going into it, we realized that we needed to kind of pull ourselves back and start asking the question about what Remedy needs to do and start asking bigger picture questions, which is, um, what is a disciple? Let's define that. And then what does a disciple do? And then once we know what a disciple does, then we can look at the specific things about what are the things that they should do independently, whether, you know, they go to a church or not. And then what's the church's responsibility? And there are things that you should do. Like there's things that you should, I'm not going to come to your house and wake you up and say, Psst, hey, alarm clock, it's, it's time for your daily devotions. Um, I, I mean, as, as a disciple, you should want to read the, read the scriptures and pray. The, your pastors aren't going to come wake you up and, you know, pour you some orange juice and open your Bible for you and say, here's Psalms 5, read. So, like, those are things that you're supposed to do by yourself. But um, there, we wanted to talk about what a disciple is. That's the first thing. And as we talked about what a disciple is, then we can talk about what he does. And we started thinking about these are things that are disciples. They're holy. They're missionaries. They're Childs, children of God, they're saved, they're forgiven, they're blameless, they love God. Um, a good definition that I got from the Reverend Steve Shepherd is a disciple is a taught one, a learner, a disciplined follower. A disciple of Christ is a follower of Christ, someone who learns from Christ to be like Christ. And so this is what a d- disciple is. And then once we know what a disciple is, then we started talking about, then what does a disciple do? What are those things like? spread the gospel, they give, they study the word, they persevere, they pray, they love their neighbors. And those are the things that disciples do. And then we started asking the question, all right, those are the things that disciples do. What's the responsibility that you're supposed to do those things by yourself? And what are we as pastors, overseers of the church, how are we supposed to help you? And there's definitely some some interchange or, you know, some similarities between those two. And so we wanted to ask the question, what are the church's, what is the church's responsibility on how do you make a how to make you a better disciple. Because Jack and I, the elders, we, um, we understand and we don't take lightly God's command that we are going to be um, held accountable or have to give an account to the Lord for how we oversaw the church. I mean, this is what Hebrews thirteen seventeen tells us, that we will have to give an account um, for the souls of the people that we oversee. And we don't take that lightly. That's, I mean, if you think about that, that's a big deal. It's not like I'm giving an account to, you know, Joe Schmo down the, down the hall. God himself is holding me, pastor, elder, accountable to how I oversee souls, which is scary. And so I take it really seriously. So we've been thinking and praying about it for um, at least nine months about how we can implement um, something into the church which, which helps you become better disciples and be um, better at making disciples. And so that's, that's what we've been thinking about and talking about and praying about. And God has brought us here because in Matthew 28, um, verses 19 and 20, this is the very last thing that Jesus tells us. As he's, um, right before he ascended <clears throat> in verses uh, 18 to 20, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he looks at his disciples, and this is true for the disciples after that, not just those 11, but um, all the rest. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy, Holy Spirit, teaching them 
to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what he told them to do, and this is what he's telling us to do. We need to go make disciples. How are we going to go make disciples? First is we're going to baptize them. Baptism comes after salvation. So we evangelize them, we tell them about Jesus in order for them to be baptized, and then we also teach them to observe. Then we talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so that's, that's a command that every disciple has. And so Jack and I take that seriously, and we wanted to think about how we can do this. And so as we've thought about it, as we've prayed about it for the last nine months, and we're going into it and we're implementing it into the church here over the next couple weeks, I'm asking you, Jack is asking you, would you please, please, if this is your church, this is where you come to on a regular basis, um, trust us as your leaders and jump in and be a part of this gospel-centered discipleship that we're doing. We, we believe it's going to be absolutely crucial for you to grow um, as, a, as a believer. And so, and you should know that the reason why we're asking you to do this is not because we just want, like, participation rates. I mean, that's the least of my, of my desires. My desire is that I want you to grow in your holiness. I want you to grow in your Christ-likeness. I want you to become a better disciple, and I want you to make disciples because that's what God wants of you. And so I want to do everything I can to put structures around you to see you flourish in disciple-making. And so it's my, it's my prayer and desperate plea that you would jump in if this is your church. Now, you might ask this. You might say, Fudd, it sounds like, and I'm busy, Fudd, that you're asking me to, to do some more stuff and put some more things in my schedule. Um, and you don't know. Like, I've got a ton of stuff going on, Fudd. I've got 15 hours, or I've got, you know, a full-time job, and I've got you know, 27 children, and I've got whatever. I mean, like, you've got um, tons, of, tons of stuff going on. Um, I can't afford another thing, and it sounds like you're saying I need to do something else, and this is all I'm going to say. Like, um, the easiest way to answer that question is yes. If, if you're not growing as a disciple and making disciples, I am asking you to do that, but I don't feel like I'm standing up here on my own authority. I feel like Jesus has already asked you to do that from Matthew 28. I'm just as the elder pastor trying to show you that if you're in Christ, you have a responsibility to do it. Um, and, I, and even further, if you're a belie- you are a believer, even though it's going to take more time commitment, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to. This, th- we're talking about God and your relationship with Jesus. We're, I'm not talking about your golf score. Like you need to put more time in to get your, your golf score down or your bowling score up or something like that or whatever did I get it right but but like um I'm talking about your your faith in Christ so as humbly as I can say this if you can't fit making disciples into your schedule you need to take stuff out of your schedule like there's no other way about that um because it's not the great suggestion it's the great commission it's not Christ saying I really would love it if you would do this for me it's if you're in Christ you have to do that. And so what we've done here is provided a structure around you that can make it possible for you to make disciples and grow as a disciple. And so that's what we're going to, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today and, and doing over the next couple weeks. And only Christ can bring these things about. We're absolutely dependent upon him to make a disciple. You can't do it on your own. It's, it's grounded in what he's done and that he would come and do it. So um, gospel-centered discipleship, this is how it's going to look. You can think of making disciples. This is what Christ told us to do in Matthew 28. We're going to make disciples here at Remedy in concentric circles out. That's a hard word, concentric circles out, which means you're going to start with yourself, and you're going to hopefully make a disciple of yourself. 
And then you're going to have a, a gospel-centered discipleship group, which will now be called GCD, just for shortened. Um, you're going to be in a GCD where you're going to make disciples of two other people. And then from that, your GCD is going to go make disciples of your neighborhood or dorm room or whatever. And then that's going to make disciples of your city or your county and then your state and then to the nations. And that's the way we want to make disciples. It's going to start with yourself. Now, when we say make disciples, I want to be really clear here that when I say make disciples, I mean make disciples of believers and make disciples of unbelievers. A lot of times we think that means I just got to stand out on the corner and with a bullhorn and yell at people and tell them that they're going to hell unless they come to Christ. It might mean that. I doubt that it, for all of you it means that, but um, like maybe 1%. But what I mean by make disciples is that for those that are around you that are believers— you're going to preach the gospel to them so that they can become more and more like Christ, more and more holy. Um, that's making disciples. Also making disciples is those people around you that don't know Christ, that aren't Christians yet, that you tell them. Now, here's the thing. You're biblically supposed to do both. It, it, it's not, well, I'm really good at one, but not the other, so I'll let the other people catch up with that one. Um, I feel like, like I'm more gifted at one than the other, but it's both. We need to, and we're responsible as, as believers to do both. And if you're really good at one, you need to just work hard at the other. That's what I have to do. Um, and so that's what we mean by make disciples. And so we're going to make disciples in concentric circles out. So the first way we're going to do that, and you, I'm going to be talking about these two pieces of paper right here. Um, these are just the gospel-centered discipleship kind of one-page understanding of what we're talking about. If you want to get these, you can walk over after I'm done to the info table, and, and you can get them both. And basically, this is just gospel-centered discipleship where we learn the gospel, believe the gospel, spread the gospel. And that's what the structure is whenever you get together in your GCD. And this other one is just the questions you ask in order to learn the gospel, believe the gospel, spread the gospel. So what I'm going to do right now is just kind of explain what this is, um, and then we're going to go to Colossians 1. So here's what uh, gospel-centered discipleship, the actual structure is. We're calling it learn the gospel, believe the gospel, spread the gospel. It's three different kind of sections um, of the way you get together. And the w- first one is you're going to get together and learn the gospel. I'm not saying, notice I'm not saying you're going to get together and study the Bible. Because I'm not so interested that you know Enoch's age when he was a, just, just taken up. Instead, when you're studying the Bible, while those things might be helpful to know, I can't imagine why, um, but if you Whenever you're getting together and studying the Bible, um, I want you to learn the gospel. So what I mean is, you as a group, as a GCD, picks a specific book of the Bible. You can pick whatever you want. Leviticus, or Philippians, or Revelation, whatever you want. You can pick a half a chapter, or a full chapter, whatever you want. You're going to read it ahead of time, and you're going to come there. And the way you learn the gospel is text theology life. We're going to look at the text, and we're going to let the text tell us everything it, it has to say. I'm not going to import my ideas on the text. I'm going to let the text inform me. And as it informs me, I'm going to study the theology. What are the things here where I can see Jesus as the hero? What are the things here I can see the beautiful aspects of the gospel? Because the gospel is like a diamond, and I can turn it, and I can see all kinds of different aspects and things about the gospel. And so what does this text have to say about the gospel? And as I've looked at the text and the theology, I'm going to hold off on application until the very end, and that's life. That's when I'm going to talk about how it applies to me, etc., etc. So when you get together, you're not going to just study the Bible. You're going to learn the gospel. And now you can see... Every one of these is learn the gospel, believe the gospel, spread the gospel. And you can see that we're not just using the word gospel in each section for redundancy. I'm using the word gospel so that we remember everything has to be founded on the person and work of Jesus and what he's done, not on what we do. So the first thing we're going to do is learn the gospel. The second thing is, is believe the gospel. And this is after you've 
learn the gospel through the word. The second one is believe the gospel. And this is key. This is your, uh, your basic and some things, accountability. But the way I, I've always done accountability is I get together with a group of guys. I, we tell each other our sins. We rebuke each other's face off. We feel really bad. We say we're never going to do it again. We come back the next week, and then we say, hey, I did it again. And so then we rebuke each other's face off or, or whatever, you know, not, you know, like really harshly. And then we come back, and we say, I did the same thing again. So that's kind of been, and so that's not what we mean where you're kind of in that same pattern of just confessing the same sins again. I, I did this again, or I'm prideful again or whatever um but instead we want it to be gospel centered so this is where it gets i think very important when we're talking about believe the gospel to get we're we're going to come together in a gcd and we're going to believe the gospel together so this is what i mean it's still going to have elements of knowing your sin and fighting your sin by the spirit but it's also going to add this gospel centeredness when you're doing it but you're also going to trust your savior So when we get together, there's going to be elements of knowing and identifying and understanding what my sin is, but we're also going to have something where I'm going to trust my Savior, which means I'm going to look at sin's promises and the temptations that it keeps giving me every single week, and I'm going to put gospel promises beside it, and I'm going to see and understand what God's promising, and I'm going to trust my Savior that He is telling me the truth and that those things aren't true. Each week when you get together, at GCD, when you do accountability, or I should say, believe the gospel, there shouldn't be a week where you don't tell each other the gospel. After you've said and identified and know some of the things that are going on, you should end with, now I want to end with the gospel. I want to tell you right now who you are in Christ. That is this gospel-centered piece, I think, that we have to understand is crucial for um, doing good accountability which means that we need to believe the gospel together. We need to hear pieces and parts each week from other people that tell us the great news, who we are in Christ, that we're holy, blameless, forgiven, and that those sins that keep tempting us are not true of us, um, and that we can learn the gospel together as a GCD. Let me give you an illustration of how this happens um, for me. I've got a pastor, some pastor friends in Charlotte. Um, There's one guy's named Stephen, and he'll email us, um, me and a couple other guys, uh, every Monday, it's always every Monday, Driscoll, Mark Driscoll, he's a pastor out in Seattle, he always calls Mondays, bread truck Mondays, which is like, you, you preach your guts out on Sunday, you're hoping everything's going to go well, you feel like you were just an utter failure, so on Monday, you just want to quit everything and go drive a bread truck, and I like, forget pastoring, I just want to drive a bread truck, I said that in first service, and I had to put my foot in my mouth, because there was actually a guy that owns a bread store, and so that was really awkward, um, but, uh, so, <laughs> um, he told me he'd give me a job if I ever needed it, which was nice, I guess. So um, anyway, I, uh, you have this little thing called, you know, where we need to hear the gospel. So my pastor friend knows that Mondays can be particularly hard on pastors. And so every single Monday, maybe every other Monday, my, this, my pastor friend Stephen, we call him the bishop, um, just for fun, he emails us uh, this, this email, and it's not very long, but it's just he was reading the scriptures that day, and he saw some truths about who we are in Christ, and he goes, fellas, this Monday, your right standing with God is not based on yesterday's performance on your sermon or on people's hearts being changed. Your right standing is based on what Christ has done for you. Work well this week and rest in the gospel. Oh, that's so good. I need to hear that. And you need to hear that. We've got a guy here on staff, Stephen, who will every once in a while, he'll just be reading the scriptures and he'll send me, I, I know he's been reading Isaiah, like, cause he, I get, I've been getting texts from, from Isaiah for a while. Every other, every, I don't know, every couple weeks in the morning, he'll send me these beautiful gems and pieces of the gospel from Isaiah just reminding me that Christ has died and given me righteousness. And here's the thing. You can do that. You can do that 
to people in your life in whatever media you want, on the city or through email or through text message, when you're reading the scriptures and you think, this is good, so-and-so needs to hear this. They're struggling with X, Y, Z. I'm going to send them uh, this great gospel promise. You can do that. You can do that in your GCD, and you can do that with your parents. You can do that with your spouse. You can do that with your roommates. And not only can you, you absolutely should be. We need to get really good at telling each other the gospel, believers and unbelievers. And I'm, I'm promising you, the more you get... Um, in the practice of telling the gospel, to, even to believers, you're going to get real good at telling it to unbelievers. And we all want unbelievers to be saved. So practice it. Get good at um, telling each other the gospel and rehearsing the gospel in your mind. So the first section is learning the gospel. The second section is believing the gospel. And the last section is spreading the gospel. And this is where we start seeing those concentric circles working out. We've been making a disciple of ourselves, and we've been making a disciple of, the, of those two other people in our GCD. And now, in our GCD, we're going to start talking about things like, who am I thinking about? Who am I praying for? And who am I intentionally positioning myself around? Um, which people that are not yet Christians that I can go make disciples of them? So this is where those concentric circles start working out, and we're going to go spread the gospel. And you've got two other people who are going to, every single week, ask you, tell me two or three people in your life right now that that don't know jesus that you know don't know jesus i want to pray for them right now and maybe i can even give you some ideas about how you can put yourself around them and do that and the way we even have a couple things about spread the gospel the way we're going to talk about spreading the gospel is it's alliterated so it's really fun to memorize um um, declare and demonstrate so declare means it's just that simple message. You're going to go out and you're going to trust the power of the gospel. Romans 1, 16, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's 18. The, po- the message itself has amazing power. I don't have to flower it up or do anything special. I just got to tell people Jesus died for their sins and you can be forgiven because of that. It's that simple. I'm going to go declare the gospel. I'm going to find um, opportunities for people that don't know Christ and declare it to them. And the other is demonstrate. So surely if you're in Christ and you are, you've been in Christ for a while, the gospel itself should have had some kind of effects on you. It has to change you. You have to see in your life a, a love for other people developing. You have to see in your life um, places where you can see people that you can go serve them, that you can go meet their needs. If, the, if you're a believer and you don't ever find yourself loving other people or desiring to meet other people's physical needs, then I would say, man, you gotta, you got to return to the gospel and get some good understanding of it. Like, it's supposed to have big effects on you. And when it has those effects, not only do you declare, but you demonstrate. You demonstrate to them the effects the gospel has had on you by going and meeting their physical needs and serving them and ministering to them. That itself is also mission. Don't miss that. We always think mission is just, you know, whenever I finally formally share the gospel with them and they get saved and that's mission. That's, that is mission, but mission is also meeting people's physical needs and befriending them and coming to know them and serving them and ministering. And as you're doing that, then you also declare. So these concentric circles that we're talking about of um, your GCD and then your dorm room or your neighborhood or whatever and out um, to the nations, I want you to think about this. Um, A lot of times when we talk about making disciples or taking the gospel to the nations, especially in Matthew 28, he says to go to all the ethne, um, pantata ethne, to all the ethnic groups, we always just think that means we've got to take the gospel, you know, to the 1040 window or I've got to move to sub-Saharan Africa or if I don't go to Southeast Asia, I'm not really fulfilling the Great Commission. And God might be calling you towards that, but also 
God is absolutely calling you to take the gospel to America, to our nation, not just the nations, but don't forget our nation as well. It's both. It's there and here. Let me read you a quote um, from, a, I don't know what book this was from, um, but there's a book that I, I was reading the other day uh, by a guy named Danny Aiken and Bruce Ashford, and they had this quote just talking about America right now, and this is what he says. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations or all ethnic groups. This includes our own nation, the United States of America. And yet the truth is that we, Christians, are failing to meet the challenge. While the population of our nation increases, it's only increasing, the population of our churches has not kept pace. Also, the population of Christians is going down. That's just known that we are not keeping pace with the population increases in America. And it says, while the United States becomes increasingly more diverse, many of our churches have remained mostly middle class, mostly white, and mostly declining churches. And this is a painful truth. And to ignore this fact is the worst form of denial, which means America now is becoming one of the most unreached people groups and it's becoming vastly diverse, which means... We as believers must start moving out of our comfort zone and making disciples of this nation, not just the people that act like us, think like us, share our same interests, but the nation that's actually before us, which is diverse, increasingly diverse. And we have to obey the commands of scriptures, find ourselves demonstrating a deep love for people and whoever they are, make disciples of them. That's what God is calling us to do. Not just keep letting our churches look, as he said, mostly middle class, mostly white. And if that's the case, we're going to be mostly declining. America is changing, and we have to make disciples of the changing America. And so I want you to think about what it means to make disciples. means, in America as, as well, that it doesn't mean that we keep going the same way we're going. It can't mean that, or else we're going to keep declining. So gospel-centered discipleship. It's something that we're doing in the church, and I think it's really important as we look at that third piece of spread that we consider what that really means in America. Now, here's the thing. If you are 12 or if you are 72, gospel-centered discipleship is for you. It doesn't matter what your age is. I know some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds good for these young bucks. They can, they can handle this, but I'm good. I got it all together. Um, <laughs> none of us have it all together. Gospel-centered discipleship is for every single person in this room. And I think every single person, well, I should say, every single person in this room that attends Remedy. It might not be for, you know, people in, in other countries. They, they'll make disciples other way in their churches. But no matter how old you are, I think that you should dive in completely on this at Remedy Church. Why would I say that? How could I say something I think that's strong? This is why. Because you and I, if you're in Christ, still have the tendency to walk up to our car, crank it up, and drive over to Sin's house. And it doesn't matter how old you are, that's the case. And you have to actively, actively make a disciple of yourself so that you can make disciples of others. That make disciples of others. That make disciples of others. And so every single one of us is in desperate need for this. Now, we're going to look at Colossians 1 now. And what I want you to see here is... In Colossians 1, we're going to go right to verse 15, and we're going to go through 23. 
Um, we're going to look at 15 through 23. And I, I want you to see that the way Paul has written Colossians 1 is the exact same way I've patterned these two sermons. Verses 15 through 20, all he's going to talk about is what Jesus, who he is and what he's done, which is what I tried to do last week. And then he's going to get to, in verses 21 through 23, what we need to do. And if, just look at the first two words of 15 and the first two words of 21. It's that same pattern. Look at 15. He is. So the first thing we need to think about is Jesus is. So based on that, then you can look at verse 21. Look what it says. And you. And this is, this is what we have to understand this. So let's look at 15 through 20, and then we'll look at 21 through 23. And we get to verse 21 through 23. I want to um, make a confession of my bad exegesis that I used to do. Um, but let's look at 15 through 20 first. This is so key. Just be maybe re-amazed with me at just how amazing Jesus is. Look what he says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So Jesus is God himself. And it doesn't mean that he's created. That's not what he's saying. It wouldn't make sense if that's what he's saying. Verse 16 wouldn't make sense where he says, for by him all things were created. So all things were created by Jesus. And so he wasn't created. He's always been from eternity past God. It just means that he is preeminent. He is first place among all creation. There is nothing more important in all creation than Jesus, but he's not created. He created all things. And so he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. Look where all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him. Everything that you can see and everything that's just invisible, he created all those things, all of them. Why did he create them? He cre- not, it says, all things were created through him and for him. You were created for Christ. You were created to glorify Jesus with your life. And then it says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and, and everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. This idea of preeminent, some of your versions might say first place, that he is the most um, precious reality and the most important reality in all of the world, that he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, which means he was a man, but he was still 100% God. He was 100% God, 100% man. All the fullness of God dwelled inside of him. So it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, by his going to the cross, to reconcile to himself all things. So everything that's ever been created because of his work on the cross is now being reconciled back to him for his glory. And it says, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, or making peace by the blood of his cross. And so based on that, and what, who he is and what he's done, now we're going to look at 21 through 23, and this is going to talk about us now. Now notice the progression of 21, 22, 23. 21, the, the first verse is who you are outside of Jesus. 22 is how you've been saved, or, or I'm sorry, what Jesus has done. And verse 23 is now what do you need to do? Look at 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This is, and now you, this is who you were. Now look at this. this is, we talked about this last week. This is where it gets awesome, verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. You who were once far off, he reconciled you to God through his body of death. And when he did, now you are now presented up before the throne of God as 
holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Fudd, you can't say that. That's dangerous. You keep telling them they're holy and blameless. They're just going to go send it up. I don't believe that's true. I think that if I keep telling you and reminding you who you are in Christ, then you're going to start thinking about what I think it's Philippians 3, 16 says, only let us hold true to what we've already attained. If God has said I'm holy, all I want to do is hold true to that. I just want to live that out. You can keep telling me I'm holy. It's not going to make me go sin. Instead, I'm so thankful for that. I'm going to pursue Christ with everything I have. I think that's what's true of real believers. So I can't stop telling you who you are in Christ. I don't think I should. I don't think it's dangerous because if you're truly in Christ, you're not gonna wanna just throw that off and go do sin. You're gonna see Christ as the most precious reality and you wanna give your entire life towards him because of the fact that he has now made you holy and blameless. All of the anger of God, all of the wrath was supposed to be put on you and now none of it's put on you and has been put on Jesus for you. And all that makes me wanna do is not say, well, I wanna go sin. It makes me want to say, I want to live for Christ. More than anything in my life, I want to live for Christ. I think that's the natural reality of Christians, or the natural reaction for Christians. So, he has now presented you holy and blameless and above above reproach before him. And here it goes. This is where it gets, I think, a little tricky. Verse 23, these things are true. And then it says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. And so, like, I used to preach verse 23 that says, these things are true of you in Christ if you remain stable and steadfast, not shifting. And I would kind of preach it this way. I would say, there's a road, and this road right here is called sanctification. It's the process of becoming more Christ-like. And so, The only way you're going to reach the end of the road is if you are stable and steadfast. If you walk down this road, it all kind of depends on how you do it. Don't don't find yourself shifting off and going and making shipwreck of your faith. But instead, it's all on you, Fudd. Stay stable and steadfast walking down the middle of the road. I I mean, I don't know how I missed it, but I don't think that's the gist at all. I don't think that's the point. And if we miss it, then we immediately revert back to legalism and we make it all about us and we make staying a believer about our performance. But look what he says. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope, the hope of what? You and how you walk down the road? No way. From the hope in the gospel. (laughs) That's awesome. So my walking or my continuing in sanctification is not dependent upon me, making sure I walk down the road right. Instead, it's my hope in the gospel and what's already been declared of me. So my fight is not for doing. My fight is a fight for faith and who Christ has already declared of me. And I just need to continue to fight for, believe in what Jesus has done for me. That's why I think it's so important that we get into groups so that we can preach the gospel to each other and we can do discipleship. We can do sanctification by ourselves because... While your faith or your sanctification or your salvation is a personal thing, it's never meant to be private. You have to have other people come around you and help you fight this fight of faith so you can and have people help you hope in the gospel, not your performance. Hope in the gospel. I think that's so key. Amazingly key. So, that's what we're going to do here at Remedy. Um, Believe, learn, believe, and spread the gospel. And so I just encourage you, if you're um, feeling challenged, that you would 
possibly consider that being the Holy Spirit. Um, and that you would think about wanting to do this. We're going to really start implementing this in the next couple weeks. If you're not in a, in a community group, you need to get in one. I mean, it's absolutely essential that you get in a community group. 12 other people that you can do life with, and you can break off into those groups of two or three from that community group, and you can pursue um, making disciples of yourself and of others in that context. And so that's the way we're going to do it at Remini. Now, what we're going to do now is go into a time of worship. Um, and this time of worship is going to be based on what we just read in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It's going to be based on the gospel. There's not, a, I don't think, a whole lot of like, in my mind, I don't think there's a whole lot of confession and repentance that you need to stay seated right now for a, a song or two. And, and really, maybe the Lord's leading you for some repentance. Maybe you've never considered or you just kind of like sloughed off care for other people and you, you just, you need to confess and repent. But what I want you to do is, as fast as possible, I just want you to stand up and w- as we worship through song, think about this. Holy blameless above reproach before him and what that does to your soul let those truths drive down deep into your soul consider the affections you should have for jesus and let them come out in corporate worship this is one way of worship is through song and then you'll go and you'll worship with your life but what i want to do here in response is let's stand and just give christ the glory that he's due so i'm going to pray and then i would just say when you're ready Stand. We'll have some songs that will respond through um, worship to Christ. And next week we'll be back to a more normal uh, kind of week where we're picking texts and going through texts. But right now I'm going to pray, and then we'll just we'll worship Jesus for what for what He's done in the gospel. And I encourage you to be thinking about and praying about what this gospel-centered discipleship might look for you at your life, whether you're in college or whether you know you're going to do it in your neighborhood or with you know, your sisters or your brothers, or if you're already doing something like this, think about putting this structure in place and um, going through this structure. I think it's a really good structure. But uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll respond through, through worship and song. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've told us that we need to make disciples. And then because of that, God, we should desperately want to see that happen in our life. And so I pray for my friends here, Lord, if they consider their life and they look past the last year, two years, three years, however long they've been a Christian, um, they survey whether they're making disciples of themselves and others and they're falling short, Lord, that you would lead them to a place of response. They would say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to just consider the Great Commission and not do anything. But Christ is calling me to go and make disciples, baptize, teach. And I want to do this because what, uh, what he's done is now compelling me. It's constraining me that I must go do this. And so I pray for my friends, Lord, that as they're thinking through and as they're praying through these things, God, that you would... Um, help them see this amazing mercy that we have, this amazing grace we have in the gospel. And Lord, that they would just want to stand and worship and give you all the glory and go from here of lives of worship and fulfill the Great Commission. I thank you for this opportunity you've given me to preach and I pray for my friends here, God, that that from this, Lord, 
you can take feeble attempts at preaching your word like this morning and turn it into something glorious. That people can meet Jesus all over the city. People don't have to stay in the domain of darkness. And that you can use these people in this room and that they can see people be transferred from eternity in hell into eternity in heaven. Days like this, things like that can happen and people's eternities can be changed. And I just want to be a part of that, Jesus. I don't want to get to the end of my life and waste it and not see people come to know Christ. And I know that that's the prayer of my friends here who are in Christ. So would you do that? And Jesus, for those that don't know Jesus and have never tasted the beauty of forgiveness in Christ, would you draw them out today? Would you open their mind to this beautiful message? Would you regenerate them? Help them be born again. Help them believe in Jesus. Confess sin and put their faith in Christ for what he's done and save them today. We know that you can do that. Would you do that this morning, Lord? I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.